Was the death of the microbiology scientist David Kelly truly a suicide, or was it a homicide concealed by the state of Great Britain? Why do officials refuse to call a public inquest into the death of this high-profile figure when so many anomalies and discrepancies are evident to several doctors and much of the general public? Was there a mysterious nuclear weapon in use during the shock and awe devastation that war brokers don't want the public to know about? What did Dr. Kelly know that might pose a threat to the architects of the war on Iraq? This week, in a follow-up to last week's Iraq War episode of the Global Research News Hour, we conduct a special interview addressing the sudden death of the Welsh scientist and authority on biological warfare, Dr. David Kelly, and the struggle to have a proper analysis of his supposed suicide investigated in a proper public inquest as the situations have broader ramifications for the guilt of then Prime Minister Tony Blair and the further disrepute of the Iraq War. In a feature interview with Dr. David Halpin, a member of the team fighting to get the truth out, we will talk about some of the anomalies of Kelly's death, his last visit to Iraq, a discussion of why his suicide might have been faked and concealed, and the truly vicious nature of the people leading Great Britain at a time of war. On this week's program, Iraq 20 Years After Shock and Awe, Part 2, The Mysterious Death of David Kelly. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 31st, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this broadcast was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Numerous opportunities opened to settlers on the land came unjustly through dishonored promises and treaties, and the historical opposition continues to this era. We must all seek to finally pay reparations for the damages done to indigenous people and strive for full reconciliation and partnership. Now it's time for News Notes, a sequence of article summaries from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Discontent with President Emmanuel Macron is mounting in the aftermath of his executive enactment of a controversial pension reform bill that would make substantial changes to the retirement system for millions of workers. On March 22nd, Macron sat down for an interview with a French television station where he attempted to justify his actions which bypassed a vote within the National Assembly. Macron 
maintained that it was necessary to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 while requiring 43 years of service to qualify for full pension benefits. He continued the same argument that without these reforms, the retirement system would become insolvent in a matter of a few years. Such statements by the president further inflamed the public, prompting even larger and more militant demonstrations between March 23rd to 26th. That comes from the article, Fires in the Streets of France Illustrates Anger Over Pension Reforms, by Abiyomi Azikiwe, posted March 30th. The fact that a pompously announced 13-year electric car transition was cancelled only one year after it was adopted strongly suggests that the original idea was untenably stupid. As I mentioned above, a 13-year policy cancelled in its second year surely is stupid, almost by definition. However, the EU is not alone. California and New York, the bastions of virtual signaling climate activism, are still going full speed ahead, banning gasoline cars while phasing out fossil fuel generation and doing nothing for nuclear power. This so-called transition will make much money for the movers and shakers, but is technologically unfeasible due to the lack of cheap carbon-neutral baseload energy. Baseload means not depending on weather. That comes from the article, Europe abandons all electric car mandate, stupidity of the CO2 transition, by Igor Shudov, posted March 30th, originally published on Igor's newsletter. According to Klaus, it is important to take the lead in this development in order to ultimately stand as, quote, the ruler of the world, unquote and who masters those technologies in some way will be the master of the world. In order to emerge as a winner in the end, developing the necessary leadership skills is crucial. What Klaus is referring to is that it is the compliant, adaptable, and resilient who will do best. That is to say, those who enter the futuristic path and the idea of the sustainable utopia that Klaus and the WEF represent. He also said that it is important to be prepared for unpleasant surprises. That comes from the article Klaus Schwab, quote, Who masters those technologies in some way will be the master of the world, unquote. By Jacob Nordengard, posted March 30th, originally published on the blog for Jacob Nordengard. A self-driving car might be great for a person that is physically handicapped, but it can also be a crutch that convinces a population to never learn to drive themselves. By extension, AI is in a lot of ways the ultimate crutch, which leads to ultimate tyranny. If people are convinced to hand over normal human processes and decision-making opportunities to automation, then they have handed over their freedoms in exchange for convenience. More importantly, if algorithms are allowed to dictate a large portion of choices and conclusions, people will no longer feel a sense of accountability for their actions. Regardless of the consequences, all they have to do 
for the rest of their lives is tell themselves they were only following the suggestions or orders of AI. That comes from the article, Global Governance by Artificial Intelligence, The Ultimate Unaccountable Tyranny, by Brandon Smith, posted March 29th, originally published on alt-market.us. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Dr. David Kelly was the head of the Defense Microbiology Division, working at Porton Down, Wiltshire, and one of the chief weapons inspectors to Iraq police-backed volunteer team claimed to find the body of Dr. Kelly sitting with his back against a tree on Harrowdown Hill, one mile from his home. He was dead. An apparent suicide. It appears that he ingested 29 tablets of coproximol, an analgesic, and had severed the ulnar artery on his left wrist, as reported in the Independent Dr. Kelly, a renowned expert on biological weapons, exposed that the claims by President Bush, Prime Minister Blair, and U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell of mobile weapons of mass destruction units in Iraq were false. A team of physicians looked into the apparent suicide death and found a number of problems with the official story. It would become clear that the death was more likely a murder and speculation would be fostered as to who would have motivated someone to murder Kelly. What was their motive, and why had the government apparatus sought to cover it up with an inquiry? The Global Research NewsHour was intrigued with this issue, and so decided to devote an entire program on it with one of the doubting doctors. Dr. David Halpin is a specialist in trauma and orthopedic surgery, he also majored in forensic pathology. Together with two other doctors, he brought doubts about David Kelly's death to the attention of the media. He is today pushing for a coroner's inquest into Kelly's death. Here he is on the Global Research News Hour. Dr. Halpin, when did you start to question the suicide to begin with? I mean, did, did it sound fishy from the start? I thought it was a bit fishy from the start, but I didn't go into it in detail in the summer of 2003. But I started thinking about it later. And I wrote a letter to the Morning Star, a so-called left-wing paper, which I supported and wrote for. And I wrote a letter on December the 16th of 2003, saying several things. Um, first of all, that he was very expert in um, what I later called the biology of death and that he'd chosen the most uncertain way to kill himself, if that was what had happened. And I said in my letter too, I didn't, I hadn't raised the matter before, or the matters, because I didn't want to disturb the family. That letter was um, read by two people, uh, Dr. Frost and Rowena Thursby, who were looking at Dr. Kelly's death in detail. And over that Christmas of 2003, I was drawn into that really couple, Three, three of us became, and eventually it widened to about 10 or 11. Quite a few people have died since over the 20 years, but um, I've continued my interest, continued 
to be interested in this. In fact, more than that, we've been we have been pleading for an inquest on Dr. Kelly, which uniquely he has never had extraordinarily. And that has been our main plea. We haven't assumed uh, assassination, although that seems highly likely, but we have tried very, very hard to secure an inquest. And so hard that in um, December 2011, with a great deal of public support, uh, raised over three weeks, about 50,000 pounds, I stood in court, Halpin versus Regina, on the 19th of December uh, in a what was a fixed court, quite, quite clearly, and our plea was in fact refused by the judge, Justice Roper. Uh, he, it's interesting to note that he, his judgment took seven, 19 pages and he had it prepared already before a hearing which lasted about four to five hours with quite a large lunch break, lunch adjournment. So quite extraordinarily, he prepared his judgment from the papers and not from the hearing. That's the first thing to observe. And uh, I was asked if I wanted to appeal expensive exercise. And I wasn't even sure whether that was possible over the Christmas period. We let it lie, but I haven't given up. I've continued thinking about Dr. Kelly because I think that lies should be challenged and the whole damn thing is a lie. Well, they said that uh, he was very, he was really treated rather roughly uh, by the, uh, the the parliament asking questions just to two days before he died. And so, you know, they, yes. they led people to believe that he it was so bad that maybe he, uh, you know, in desperation just committed suicide or something like that. Could you talk about maybe some of the details of his death, uh, whether it's the, the, the suicidal deviation, as it were, or just uh, the, the very aspects of his death that, that, that doesn't quite uh, jibe with uh, your understanding. Yeah. He was treated roughly. Uh, well, in part he was treated roughly and people focus on the um, questioning by a Labour MP uh, who I've met since. And uh, he in fact was trying to show that in fact Dr. Kelly had been put up as a distraction really. He said chaff, the word the MP used. Uh, he could, it would be understood that he was upset by the hearing. He looked upset at, at one or two points and at one or two points he looked slightly um, untruthful to be honest about it. But the fact is that on the day that he walked away from his house at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, on that Thursday, um, he'd written 82 emails. And one of them was to his daughter, Rachel, who he was very fond of, had three daughters. And um, he talked about going down the next day in his village of Southmore to show Rachel where a mayor had had a new foal. And this was quite, you know, this was a, a message of joy, really. And he was addressing his daughter who lived just a few miles away in Oxfordshire. He also said in an email that he was, he'd been booked on a flight back to Iraq nine days later, and he was looking forward to that. So this was not the picture of a man who'd been so distressed by the hearing of the Foreign Affairs Committee on the Tuesday, two days before, that he had felt that life wasn't worth living. There was no indication that he was suicidal. Hmm. 
Well, what about there the, are always more. Sorry. Yeah. What what about uh, some of the fine? I mean, the in the August two thousand ten newspaper, Nicholas Hunt, the pathologist yes. who performed the autopsy on Doctor Kelly, had said, uh, uh, yes. "quote It was an absolute classic case of self inflicted injury," and he said that there were big clots of blood on the inside of Kelly's jacket, contrary to reports that there had been little blood at the scene, and and a dozen cuts on his left wrist. Uh, including shallower cuts made before the main incisions, and also that uh, Dr. Kelly's heart disease was so advanced that he could have died at any moment. Do you have any kind of response to that? Yes, the story of his, the sleeve of his jacket uh, being filled with blood emerged in a newspaper article uh, quoting Dr. Hunt, I think in 2010, seven years after his body was found. That was an, an added um, decoration, shall we say. Uh, as I pointed out, if, if he had died from exsanguination, from lack of, from loss of his blood volume, from the cut on his left wrist, which as a surgeon I would have told you might have lost perhaps about 200 mil at the most because the way arteries and blood respond to laceration, he would have had to have done a Hitler salute to fill his, um, to fill his um, the sleeve of his jacket with um, with blood, this was added by Dr. Hunt. Dr. Hunt had been qualified as a doctor for nine years when he conducted the post mortem on Dr. Kelly on late on Friday, in the in the presence of nine police officers in the mortuary, of the John Radcliffe Infirmary, nine police officers. One has to account for that quite extraordinary. Dr. Hunt had been on the home office list of pathologists for two years when he was asked to conduct an autopsy into the most high profile death in this country for years. He should have been assisting a very senior pathologist instead. Dr. Hunt produced a report on the 19th of July, a post-mortem report. He analyzed his findings he reported them, no doubt, into a recorder. At the end of the autopsy, it took about four hours, finishing after midnight. We have never seen that report. Mr. Gardner, Nicholas Gardner, the Oxford coroner, said at the time that Dr. Hunt would have to revise his postmortem report in a later statement that is recorded. We have never seen that. I have asked for it, but it is unlawful. Any pathologist must always record and present the sequence of his thoughts and recording and what is recorded in regard to his thoughts and findings. That has not happened. And that's one of the many deficiencies in the so-called Hutton inquiry. Well, Lord Hutton had not disclosed to a sufficient degree how he knew that it was a suicide. That, that was a requirement of the law. Was there some requirement imposed on him that ensured this report would not be addressed? Or, or was he merely, I don't know, incompetent or something like that? What are your thoughts? No, Lord Hutton, Lord Hutton never conducted a, an inquiry into a death before. His one public inquiry had been into a riparian issue in Northern Ireland. He was chosen, no doubt, no, no question, 
as a safe pair of hands. He was chosen, in fact, by Lord Falconer, who was a pupil with Blair in uh, when they were studying to be barristers. And Lord Hutton was called to uh, Lord, Lord Falconer's office in the House of Lords three hours after the body was found and before the body was identified, we believe by his general practitioner, but that's never been confirmed. So Lord Hutton was there by taxi, no doubt, in the House of Lords agreeing. And he was asked, he was charged with this quite ridiculously oblique uh, request. He was charged into the inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the death of Dr. David Kelly. The circumstances surrounding. It turned out, in fact, that the Hutton inquiry focused a great deal on the BBC in Gilligan and in fact rounded on the BBC and exonerated one of the worst governments we've had in this country, in fact, in our history. Um, and intent on a genocidal war based on lies. That's the fact of it. So Lord Falconer chose Lord Hutton, no doubt, in fact, with some egging on by Blair, who was, had by that time arrived in Tokyo, having received the um, Congressional Gold Medal with vast adulation in uh, Washington. You couldn't make it up, Michael. What threat did Dr. Kelly represent? I mean, yes, he was uh, uh, commenting on the weapons of mass destruction and, and saying that it wasn't uh, what they the, they were claiming was the case was uh, you know not uh, not valid or had been I guess sexed up or something like that, and and especially. No the deposition he already deposited to the House of Commons, you know, two days previously, as I said earlier, but, but what, did, what, what threat does he represent that could necessitate a murder? And, and, and several months after the war was started, was there something else he knew that, that would endanger the Iraq war mission or, or its accomplices in aggression? The key, thing, the key thing, Michael, you know, we all knew that the uh, many millions in this country knew that the dossier in September of 2002 was junk. It had been worked on, I understand, by Campbell. And in fact, he'd been, he'd at, he'd been at it over 17 times, I've seen it somewhere written. Uh, we all knew that there, was, uh, that there were lies behind this cause for war, this casus belli. Um, but the critical thing is what I've sent you. Um, he went to Iraq in May. I've got the dates there, I need to... to um, to remind them, I, I need to remember them. But he went in May, quite extraordinary then. He had difficulty getting on the plane at Heathrow to go to um, Kuwait. They were questioning his visa. And as I said then, uh, a, a call to the MOD, who was his main employer, would have cleared him straight away onto the plane. He was our top germ and chemical warfare expert. He had full CIA and MI6 clearance. He was our top dog. And I think he was also a moral man who cared for people, I believe. When he got to Kuwait that time in May, he was virtually arrested. His cell phone was taken. He was taken to a hotel and he was bundled back to, um, to Britain the next day. His daughter, Rachel, at Hutton Inquiry, described how uh, crestfallen he was. He was very upset by it, understandably. He went back to Iraq uh, he was, in fact, installed in the beaten-up barracks, I think. I don't think he ever left the barracks. 
he wanted to see what was going on. And uh, it was then in June. Now, this is the critical thing. This came to me. I joined the dots when I was seeing a remarkable film called Official Secrets. This was the story of Catherine Gunn, who um, saw this memo at her desk as a Mandarin expert in the GCHQ in Cheltenham, which was indicating a request, which was recording a request from the United States for Britain to bug the, um, the dissenting members of the Security Council. I think Brazil was one of them. She found it extraordinary that we were being asked to bug these, these Security Council members. And after two weeks, she blew the gaff. And that's why she was then charged with breaking the Official Secrets Act. But in that film, there is a clip, and it, it stood out to me, of Colin Powell on the 5th of February, 2003, at a packed Security Council meeting with his vial of anthrax. There's a great story attaching to that, which we might have time to hear about. But uh, Powell, in that um, hearing of the Security Council, was um, egging on the world or the West, the West, to attack uh, Iraq, and he described how they had they had machines to produce uh, bacteria in large quantity and to distribute it. He talked about them being on tracks or on wheels. So he was in fact forecasting um, a scene where they would show such such machines. When um, in June, Kelly was there and this, this, this picture emerged, no doubt with Sunday time showing diagrams this and aerial photographs and what have you. Kelly was phoned by Peter Beaumont of the Observer newspaper. And Peter Beaumont asked him what his view of this was. In essence, and I've, got, I've given you the transcript, in fact, which came out actually in, um, I think in the Hutton report. I'm not sure about that. But in essence, he said, the machines are what the Iraqis say they are. They are machines for producing hydrogen for the balloons for the laying of artillery guns. I'm paraphrasing that latter thing. But he discounted that there was any malign purpose in these two machines, which in fact, ironically, had been sold to the Iraqis, no doubt for high price, by British Aerospace. So you can imagine, I can easily imagine, that the sofa cabinet, Blair, Mandelson, Powell, Campbell, and all the other psychopaths sitting there sipping their wine would have in fact had brown trousers when they had that teletape or email of what Kelly had said. Kelly was going off message. And in fact, he'd been off message for some time. I think when he was went to Kuwait in May, I'm fairly certain he was being scrutinized very carefully and being kept, shall we say, on a leash. And I think the time came when probably America said it's time for Kelly to be silenced. Who silenced him, we can discuss later. The fact is this, that the Iraq war was a war primarily for Israel. And I have shown you, I've given you the reference to Oded Yinon's um, tract in Hebrew, which good Israel Shehak translated. And it showed quite clearly 
that that old dream, what I call a nightmare of uh, a larger Israel from the brook of the Nile to the Euphrates was still in the mind. And in fact, it was there. In fact, it was uh, put in a clear picture by Oded Yinon in 1982. And what was in that? The destruction first of Iraq, then of Libya, sorry, of Syria next, I think it was, then of Libya, and of all other Arab entities or nations. No mention was made of any loss of blood, but it was quite clearly in the dream, in the nightmare, that this should happen. And it's been happening. The Yemen is, in fact, one of the more, more recent uh, targets. But we have to see, I think, it wasn't a war for oil, or that was a factor. It was a war for Eretz Israel. Now, I say that as a universalist. I say it not as being anti-Jewish. I don't like racial terms anyway. But I am anti-Zionist for very good reason, and I'm very much pro-human. I'm a humanitarian. I've healed thousands of good people and less good people uh, as a surgeon with good teams at my side. I don't like any creature being harmed. And I'm almost weeping now to think of what is happening to my Palestinian sisters and brothers, to which country I've been 10 times and been killed nearly twice for my efforts. So I've seen it all. I'm speaking the truth. Dr. Kelly was likely assassinated, but he needs an inquest and he'll still have it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Uh, have you learned anything like in, in recent years uh, that uh, maybe adds to your analysis that you came to? Like maybe uh, you may help you focus on exactly who it was that uh, uh, removed uh, David Kelly or... Um... Well, I do know. I think, as you see, he went... It is an extraordinary picture. I have list, in fact, on my other screen, this, that I've closed down, my, my main computer, uh, of the some of the quite obvious omissions of the Hutton thing. The Hutton thing was millions of words, only half of one day of a 21-day total number of hearings, 21 days of hearings, only half a day was applied to the forensic elements. I don't, by by the way, I I don't major in forensic pathology, but I've always liked pathology and been good at it, and I still have a good amount of pathology in my brain. The, the mechanisms where things go wrong in our bodies. So I, I'm well aware of what uh, might have happened to Dr. Kelly. He certainly didn't die of lack of blood. The other reason, the other, you see what um, Hutton did was to adopt the diagnoses of death, the verdict, so to speak, of Dr. Hunt, this very junior doctor, a very junior doctor, and he'd been nine years qualified. I spent 11 years training to be a surgeon before I became a consultant. Quite extraordinary. And what matters a great deal is the first report that that, um, Dr. Hunt recorded in the John Radcliffe Infirmary on the early morning of the Saturday following the discovery of Kelly's body on the Friday morning. That matters greatly. It's never been revealed. It's yet one more lie in the 
ad hoc inquiry. There was no legal basis. There was no legal foundation. It was an ad hoc inquiry set up by Falconer at the um, um, request, no doubt, of Blair. The, as I call Blair, the paramount psychopath and war criminal. Mm. He's dancing around, saying what we should do with COVID and what have you. Blair should be in a cold prison right in the south of South America with tapes of children crying in Iraq with their wounds being dressed. Uh, what I notice on global research, how many good articles are coming out reminding us of the depth of evil of the West, particularly of Britain and the United States when they fell like wolves, to quote Galloway, upon Iraq, fell like wolves. Well, I just wanted to give you maybe one more chance. It's the 20-year anniversary of the war. Is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, the, the execution of, of Kelly and, and, and the cover-up uh, and, uh, you know, the, that continues to affect your outlook on, on the government and war? Well, I write a lot about the psychopath, Michael, or at least I have done. And in fact, if you put psychopath into my website, which is um, easily found as D dot halpin uh, stroke info action dot org, I think it is, um, you'll find psychopath probably about 60, 70 times. But I've, I've noted what um, Hare has said about the psychopath. And in fact, he characterizes, um, he says that there's 11 characteristics of the psychopath. In fact, Blair has them all. But we are led mostly in the West by psychopaths. We have yesterday in the House of Commons, a prominent one with blonde ruffled hair was, it was uh, squirming before um, a committee of the House of Commons, Privileges Committee so-called, and we have them in, we have them in, we have dozens of them in this country. In this country, in Britain, which fought valiantly uh, in the Second World War against elemental evil then, a lot of decent men and women sacrificed a great deal. And we're still alone in 1939. But since that Second World War, Britain has been involved in the killing and maiming and starvation, along with its great ally across the Atlantic, of millions of people. And as a Briton, I don't feel shame myself. I feel great anger that people haven't seen that. And they just get on with their lives. They deny the presence of it. And they stay comfortable without questioning it. I question it always. My writing, in fact, um, often sort of corrugates the page. I feel so strongly about it because I don't like any creature being harmed. And I say this, that child is my child. That includes every little Iraqi child now, some of them suffering from the effects of U238, which we use liberally there and in Yugoslavia, and are now in fact sending to the Ukraine, I see, or intending to, intending to. And I also say, no mother and child should be in the least harmed anywhere in our still beautiful world. And I mean it. I'm going to go on saying it until I die.
So I am speaking with Dr. David Halpin. He's a retired orthopedic and trauma surgeon, and he spent much time with with a few others pleading for an inquest on uh, Dr. David Kelly, which uh, uniquely has never happened. So uh, Dr. Halpin, speaking previously, you you'd said that uh, Kelly, Dr. Kelly was making remarks about the mobile vehicles not being used to manufacture biological weapons and that made Blair and Powell and everybody mad. And, and so they felt the need to eliminate him. But at that stage, I don't think he was disclosing anything that even the, the psychopaths, as, as you called them, were desperate to conceal. Uh, the lack of WMDs, uh, weapons of mass destruction, would sooner or later be exposed anyway, right? So I, I wonder if you have any clue as to what he might disclose that, that would really jeopardize their position. Well, I think, Michael, that his um, explosion of the um, structure which Colin Powell uh, spoke about on the 5th of February 2003 at the very well-attended Security Council meeting, that actually was a very important matter for the cabal in Downing Street when they heard that he had uh, this well-constructed thing with diagrams or whatever, as predicted by Powell, uh, had in fa- was in fact a sham, was I think a very important matter. But I think of greater importance is the thing that I've exposed in the paper I've sent to you. I then sent a letter to the assistant to the Attorney General, a man called McGinty, and I'll refer to that if I may in this 20-minute uh, interview. I can go back to my um, inbox uh, where I put down my few thoughts there. But I think one has to remember that this war was deeply unpopular in this country. A million or so had marched against it. Many people knew it was was lies snatched from thin air justifying this war. And the the government were deeply unpopular uh, before the shocking and awing started on the 22nd of of, uh, March 2003. But the unpopularity increased almost exponentially because they knew what they could see what was going on. A tremendous bombardment, that incendiary material going skywards over Baghdad. They could see and hear what was happening to the poor humans there. So it was deeply unpopular. And this is the important point. David Kelly knew the lot. It wasn't five hard drives in his house, it was seven hard drives. Whenever he went uh, to Iraq, he was often given a new laptop. Uh, there was a lot, a lot about David Kelly, which I, can, which I can tell you in another interview. But when he went to his house, the day that his body was found, uh, the uniformed police were shouldered away, and non-uniformed people, presumably from MI6, and from the MOD um, uh, police, they searched his house, had a big aerial in the garden, 140 foot high apparently, there's questions about that, and they were even stripping the wallpaper off his home, while his wife and uh, daughter were kept outside on the lawn, I think. They were looking for bugs, and they, I imagine that they were suspicious that Kelly was perhaps even a double agent, I think it's unlikely, but they were really going to town. They took away the seven hard drives, 
But some of the emails that I referred to in my last interview with you were, in fact, displayed, many of them, at the Hutton Inquiry, an inquiry which was a complete whitewash in which I've listed some main defects in another paper. So this man knew everything. Uh, he was expert in germ warfare and in chemical warfare, and it is assumed that he wasn't expert in nuclear warfare. But I know that about a week before his death or thereabouts, he went to an RAF station which focused on, new, on the defense aspects of nuclear war. So there he was as a leader speaking at an RAF base to do with nuclear weapons. Now, I go on. Someone sent me the images of Ali Abbas. And if you go to that link which I sent you, it's a very important essay by me. It's addressed to Blair. And if you, actually, if you put in questions without charge on Google, up comes a paper. If you scroll down to the most shocking images, which I always warn people about, you'll find images of Ali Abbas. He was then nine. Uh, he was in a dwelling in a village called Zafaniwa, which was between the Rashid Air Base, where the public Republican Guard was stationed at the time of the war, and Baghdad Airport. Baghdad Airport was going to be the aerial bridgehead for the um, continued invasion and occupation of Iraq. This war, as I say, primarily for Israel. I've referred already to Odeid Yinon and the intention to balkanize the Middle East, as Michel has rather nicely laid out in February. In, on the night, about the 10th night after shock and roaring started, this lad was asleep, but he was wakened by, I think, two loud noises and the most intense pain. And if you look at the images, there is Ali Abbas with both his arms incinerated, his very handsome face and neck and upper trunk spared, his trunk burned to a depth of one inches, according to the plastic surgeons who had to remove the what we call the eschar as surgeons. And below, from his lower abdomen downwards, his legs and genitalia are intact. His arms were incinerated. They were changed to carbon and the um, his phalanges, the skeleton of his hands, are shown just as white bones. The only way that could have happened, people have talked about a microwave weapon, some idiot wrote saying it was um, napalm or rubbish. The thing is quite obviously rectilinear. Uh, some force, I believe it was the nuclear radiation, exposed that poor lad's body in a rectangular way and removed his arms. He was armless. And for that crime alone, Blair should stand in the dock. I did not immediately realize what had caused these terrible injuries, but I've thought about it. And if you look at the images, the burning of his trunk tails off around the flanks, as it would do if he was irradiated. And I am certain absolutely certain that uh, Ali was his arms he was made armless and scarred terribly in his trunk by an enhanced radiation weapon 
as designed by Cohen at Livermore Laboratories, the man who regarded the weapon as humane. Now, the enhanced radiation weapon or the neutron bomb is, I think, owned by the Chinese, by the Russians, probably by the Israelis, uh, and certainly by the Americans, and was owned, I think, by the British, but it's said to have been disowned. It is a remarkable weapon. It produces a vast flux of neutrons which destroy tissues but do not destroy material. So concrete and metal survive, but tissues are frazzled terribly. In the house, in this simple dwelling in um, Zalania, uh, Ali suffered in the way that's shown in these terrible images, and his mum and dad, his, his mum was pregnant with another child, I understand, and eight relatives were incinerated. There's no other weapon which can cause such immediate and terrible damage to tissue. Now, I extend this, my thoughts. I thought a little lot about this. Had they used a weapon before? I suspect it was used in Gulf War One, as it's called, at the um, Amaria shelter, where about 400 women and children were sheltering in the bombing that, that was part of Gulf War One and the first big strike against Iraq. And those people were also carbonized, I understand. There were two holes in the roof of this concrete shelter, which um, where the missiles came through, they could well have in fact been uh, neutron bombs, neutron shells, or missiles laden with a neutron weapon. I can't prove that, but I suspect it's present. Now, I go on in fact, was it used elsewhere, the neutron weapon? Uh, I suspect it was because uh, I read more, I knew at the time, fairly soon after the war, that um, the uh, that material had been removed from the surface of Baghdad airport and removed to some site elsewhere, probably by Halliburton, the favored contractors for the US Department of Defense. Um, I knew that. It's been removed actually from the, the website, uh, from the World Wide Web uh, since well, for a long time, I think. But I had a blog recently and I could refer to that. And the blog goes into some detail about the structure that had been made, a most elaborate structure beneath Baghdad Airport. There were actual highways. There were three stories of tunnels. And the what was happening when the, uh, the British and the Americans were um, attacking Baghdad Airport in order to to occupy and hold it for the bridgehead I spoke of. Um, the Republican Guard were down in the tunnels. And they were popping up to attack the invader, the um, Anglo-Saxon invader in the large part, acting as, um, acting as um, what should we say? I, I, I've lost the word for a moment. But this blog went on to discuss why there was no, not much evidence of Republican Guard after this uh, battle for Baghdad airport. There was some assumption that they'd been flown away to Syria or um, to, even to Jordan, I think. But we're talking about perhaps a force of about 30,000 men, so-called elite troops. And the question remains whether a neutron weapon was not exploded beneath ground 
and caused the death, the massive, the mass death of the Republican Guard. This is an hypothesis, but this blog has raised the issue. Where did the Republican Guard go to? What happened to them when they were fighting the invaders themselves beneath the surface of Baghdad Airport in the most elaborate catacomb, probably constructed by a um, American or a British contractor, someone like Molan. So that's my question. Now I go on to say this, Michael, that in that Kelly would have been receiving reports because he, he'd been to Iraq 37 times. He was our leading germ and uh, chemical weapon expert. He would have been kept in contact with um, secret um, information coming back from our forces in Iraq and he would have been gathering that at his home in Southmore uh, via probably encrypted messages, I imagine. So it is quite likely that Kelly might have known that a neutron weapon had been used. Now, if he knew that, and if it was learned about a war which was constructed on the lie that Saddam still had weapons of mass destruction. And it was discovered that the Coalition of the Willing, led by US and its poodle, the uh, UK, and on behalf, I believe, in large part of Israel, if it was, if it was widely known that weapons of mass destruction had been used by the Coalition of the Willing, you can imagine that the world would have turned on the Bushes and the Blairs and the collaborators with fierce vehemence. I'm sure of that. So I think that this is the second reason why Kelly might have had to be eliminated. And wow. it was done in a way, sorry, Michael, and yeah. I'll shut up now. <laughs> and I'll just add a point about how the tableau was set at the scene of his Death. Yeah, so you're talking about basically secret weapons that uh, a secret weapon that's truly a, a weapon of mass destruction, but the kind that yes. we don't generally acknowledge. Um, I, I just wanted to mention, though, I, I saw a film recently which featured a scene with the uh, writer Gordon Thomas, who writes a lot about secret intelligence. Yes. And, and he met Kelly yes. a few months before his death. He was talking about how Kelly was planning on writing a memoir about his life and work. Exactly. And, and that would have been too much for the powerful people, but uh, that he might actually disclose something in violation of the Official Secrets Act. Okay, and, and he stressed that Kelly was a figure in the field of biological intelligence, uh, high, high, uh, highly placed. Might it have been biological intelligence or a biological program he might have been trusted to conceal as, as opposed to, uh, uh, as you say, you know, spotting this uh, you know, secret weapon, a nuclear device? What do you think? I think that's a possibility because um, he was very expert 
in the, in the biological field in particular. He was acting head of Port and Dam, our so-called defense establishment, for nine years. So he knew, I coined, a, I quite, I've had a few um, um, uh, sound bites. One of them was matchstick thinness to describe the artery that was cut in his left wrist. That stuck in the, in the media. And the other one was the biology of death. Kelly, they, they'd have been experimenting on macaque, monkeys, sheep, all sorts of poor animals at Port and Down. And Kelly would have known the process by which, by which they were killed, including with, um, you know, with um, uh, nerve gases, as they had done in Port and Down for years before, on volunteers, actually. There's a lot I know about that. So Kelly uh, might well have uh, had in mind He'd been, he debriefed that leading um, germ warfare expert, uh, Ali Bay, I think his name was, he come to me now, in Russia. He was responsible for his debriefing when, they, um, when he came over to the West and, um, or during that time in the, in, in the Soviets when they um, exposed what they were up to partly. Uh, but, so he was expert in that. But I know Gordon Thomas actually made contact with us when we were pleading early on for an inquest into Kelly. And I know he was interested in it. And I, know, I think Kelly was writing a book, in fact. But I think that, um, you know, what might come out, like that famous book by Spycatcher, which has come to me as well, Peter, Peter so-and-so, uh, a book is fair enough. It takes time to come out. And of course, they're quite good at restricting the editions of those books. But what was happening day by day following uh, March 22, 2003, was of utmost importance to the public psyche. People um, want, they, they respond to immediacy. They get into a flurry when things are happening and the media then drop it and assume people forget about it. But I'm quite certain that if it came out that they'd used a WMD in Iraq, that would have blown up Blair's government. I think they'd have been made to resign within days, I think, even with the damnable Tories opposing them. Let me add this, that Hoon, who was our so-called defense minister and who was partly responsible for the outing of Kelly, people, the, the press were asked to phone up and they, they said that they, they had the source of some information that wasn't the total, it wasn't the source anyway, as it happened, but they were invited to phone up and suggest a name. Once, when, when the name was found to be correct by the telephonist, presumably, or by some official, then uh, the name was given to them, which was confirmed. And that's how Kelly was outed, even though the uh, duty of a state employing a man who had full CIA and um, MI6 clearance was to keep his identity secret. They let his name go out. Now, Hoon, was part of that, Hoon said that if the uh, Iraqis used chemical weapons in the invasion, and don't forget that our forces were given rubber suits and other um, material, other uh, defenses against chemical weapons, they couldn't wear them, it was so damned hot as it happened. But Hoon said that if, if Hussein, Saddam Hussein used chemical weapons, we would use nuclear weapons. Did you know that, Michael? I, I, it, sound, it sounds accurate. 
it, it sounds accurate it's yeah. true now you think of that actually that our defense minister of the united kingdom said that if there were chemical weapons to be used and you can say that they might have used something quite sort of pathetic or quite like um, say chlorine yeah. the, the response would have been a nuclear weapon that is extraordinary and it shows you how inured we are to evil and to the types that get elected in our country that there was no outcry then as i know about i end my piece okay all right uh well unless you have any closing thoughts and i i guess we'll close the the conversation now um well what i i'd say say quickly michael that one of my current sayings among others like uh, i gave to you no mother and child should be in the least harmed anywhere in our so beautiful world i also say there is no depth to which the psychopath will not sink and a good example is anthony Charles Linton Blair, the paramount psychopath and war criminal. Okay. Well, we'll close our conversation then. Thank you so much for your work and your appearance on the Global Research News Hour. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Michael, for inviting me. I'm very honored. Dr. David Halpin was part of a team of physicians trying to push for a new investigation of the suicide of a so-called suicide of David Kelly. There is evidence the death of Dr. Kelly seems to have been a crime of the deep state itself that was then concealed. I certainly hope Dr. Halpin and his colleagues do get a proper coroner's inquiry, though I suspect such an action, if it did come about, would be as revealing as that of the assassination of JFK or the crime of 9-11. We will reopen a discussion on this program at a later date. Coming up next week is a rerun of the interview with Seymour Hirsch. And after that, we will have a discussion on the colonization of Africa in recent years and other incidents in a special Black News update. We hope you will join us. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.